1: Hello Chris, good to talk again. Uh packed agenda today as usual. A lot going on with UK politics and indeed this morning we got some pretty dire economic data relating to the United Kingdom. Um, you want to talk about a video you saw of the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer explaining inflation to the unwashed masses We've had data from the euro area this morning, which I think is consistent with a lot of the narrative we've seen in recent days about a slightly more upbeat assessment of the world. And indeed, that's something that came across very strongly as the meeting in Davos progressed last week. Um, And indeed, I think we should have a brief discussion on what went down at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And finally, there's a lot of stuff going on on the inflation front at the moment with um, food prices, with grain prices, with um, energy prices and so on. So I think that's worth having a bit of a discussion on because it is, I think these things are important in terms of the global economic outlook and also indeed, what central bankers are or are, are, are not likely to do over the coming months. Chris, starting off with the UK situation this morning, we had the Composite Purchasing Managers Index. Uh, this is basically a diffusion index. When a reading is above 50, it means more companies are expanding than contracting. And When it's below 50, it means more companies are expecting to contract than expand. And the UK Composite Index fell from 49 in December, which in itself was a contractionary reading to 47.8. And within within the breakdown of that, services fell from 49.9 to 48. And manufacturing improved slightly from 45.3 to 46.7. But in overall terms, that is a pretty dire set of economic data from the United Kingdom and does suggest that the pessimism around prospects of the UK economy over the coming months look quite um, justified at this juncture. But I guess where we should start off really is with a discussion of the chairman of the Conservative Party, Nadim Zahwe, who is caught in a serious tax scandal at the moment, serious pressure on Risi Shunak, the Prime Minister to sack him and Nadeem Zahwe was Chancellor of the Exchequer in the dying days of Boris's regime. So the shit show I guess that is UK politics and economics continues.
2: Same old, same old Jim. Uh, this is just a continuation of the farrago that happened under boris johnson's watch we didn't expect it to happen quite so soon under rishi sunak because none of this mud is actually sticking to sunak in 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 any behavioral sense it's not there are no allegations that sunak has done anything wrong alistair campbell tony blair's ex pr henchman put it very well this morning when he was trying to explain to people exactly what's going on because it can be very confusing amidst all of the claims counterclaims denials threats of legal writs and all sorts of things have been flying around Campbell summarised it as follows. He said Zahawi didn't pay the tax he should have done. That's a fact. Fact number two is that Zahawi was fined by the UK's equivalent of the Revenue Commissioners, HMRC it's called. Fact number three is Zahawi lied. Fact number four, according again to Campbell, and I think most of these facts are in the public domain, if not all of them, Zahawi threatened libel. Uh, To those investigative journalists and forensic accountants, those sorts of people have been on this case for quite some time. He threatened them with libel suits. He sent them lawyer's letters over over stories that turned out to be true. Campbell's point is a very simple one. Why on earth do you need an ethics advisor to tell you that this behaviour was unethical? Isn't it blindingly obvious? And others have made a very similar point. Angela Rayner, speaking in the House of Commons yesterday, made actually, I think, quite a brilliant short speech asking Campbell-type questions, making Campbell-type points. And she asked, "Why, why is there a lower bar to get into this Cabinet than there is to get a knighthood? And she also asked the question, why does the Prime Minister need an ethics advisor to be able to take action in this particular case? Sunak himself has said, I think today, questions... That need, there are questions that need answering, which is British Prime Minister speak for saying I'm about to sack Zahawi if he doesn't resign. That's Christian speaking there. That's my interpretation of that remark, which may or may not turn out to be true. And 10 Downing Street anonymous spokesperson has said today that Sunak didn't know about the penalty paid to the tax authorities by Zahawi when he expressed complete confidence in uh, Zahawi in the House of Commons last week. So there's sounds of people backpedalling, distancing themselves from Mr Sahawi. I would expect him to be gone, if not by the end of the day, by the end of the week. But who knows, in the very febrile uh, state of British politics. A couple of things that emerge out of all of that is that I know it feels like same old, same old. And it is. This Conservative Party is just filled with rotten people. I think that the performance of Angela Rayner was particularly interesting in the Commons yesterday. She's one to watch. Definitely, from from a, for a number of reasons. Firstly, that she's very good at what she does, and she's very good at skewering the prime minister, possibly better than Keir Starmer. Actually, well, not possibly. I say definitely. The other thing is that Angela Rayner didn't go to Eton or Oxford, and wherever you look, uh, frankly, on both sides of the house, but mostly in this Conservative Party, including the ethics adviser, that everybody's asking, why do you need one for this particular case? the ethics advisor, only just appointed by Sunak last last month, December 2022, another Old Etonian, another one that went to Oxford, and another investment banker. The, the, the fact that Brit- the British ruling class is now essentially all coming from this narrow, narrow cabal caste of people, I think is part of its problem. I think it's, it's, it's inbred. It has all of the problems of inbreeding and it doesn't have enough outside voices. And my point about Angela Rayner, I guess, is that she is just a fantastic outside voice that needs needs to be listened to.
1: And tell me, Chris, are there any moves within the Labour Party to get rid of Claire Starmer, or is he safe?
2: Oh, he's safe until the next general election, no doubt. Rayner and Starmer badly fell out last year, and Starmer moved against her. Uh, she is far too... Uh, I suspect that he thinks she's far too far to the left for his taste and is too willing to speak her mind and not toe the party line. And she emerged from that battle actually stronger with more titles within the Labour Party, actually. So she's a formidable uh, presence in the Labour Party. And I think a favoured candidate to replace Starmer, if and when the time comes. But that time is not imminent for... Great background on Angela Rayner. Fantastic uh, piece, actually. There was uh, a recent lunch with the FT; they run it every weekend. I can't... Yes, and they did one with Rayner. Fantastic, really, really great read in and of itself. Beautifully written, and she comes across as an immensely able, intelligent, likable human being. And you can understand, I think, why people are speaking of her as a potential future prime minister. So. Um, you do I would urge anybody to take a look at that FT piece if they can.
1: And Chris, the amount of money that's the highway is uh, the fine was five million pounds sterling.
2: I think the fine from memory was thirty percent. So whatever, thirty thirty percent. Yeah, so if he was fined 5 million and the fine was 30% of the tax bill, then very roughly speaking, a third of 15 is five. So it, between 15 and 20 million appears to be what he's paid to the revenue. As we understand it, it was money paid into a trust fund in Gibraltar for when Zahawi sold an opinion polling company called YouGov. That's my understanding of it. If I've got any details wrong, I apologise. And it's the beneficiaries of that trust fund appear to be the thing that was at issue.
1: Okay, and tell me, Chris, are the citizens of the UK taxed by all of this, pardon the pun?
2: Yeah, I think they are, actually. I'm sorry, we are often accused of being to the right of the political spectrum on this podcast, but I'm going to sound like a socialist now. One of the things that really irritates people in this country... Is benefit fraud. The fact is that you're 23 times more likely to be prosecuted for benefit fraud than tax crimes, even though tax fraud costs an estimated 20 billion a year. I think that figure is higher, actually. I'm quoting from somebody else here. And benefit fraud is reckoned to cost between 2 and 3 billion. So you're talking orders of magnitude of money being lost to the state from tax fraud compared to benefit fraud. And yet the Tories, all they ever get exercised about is benefit fraud. And that's wrong. OK. Uh, you
1: con- contrast that, Chris, with what's going on on this side of the Irish Sea. L- last week, we spoke about the problems Pascal Dunne, who was having, is having. And indeed, he's making a third statement to the Dáil this afternoon. But the guy at the other side of this controversy, Michael Stone, a businessman in North County, Dublin... He came out in Pascal's constituency. He came out this morning um, trying to clarify the situation. He said that he paid personally for six people to help with postering ahead of and just after the February 2020 general election. Uh, he paid those, but uh, basically f- f- forgot the fact that he would paid them and didn't tell Pascal Donoghue. So as a consequence, it was not declared by Pascal Donoghue. Um, 972 euro is the amount of money, and he also supplied those people with vans that was not charged to Pascal Donohue or the Fine Gael Party 434 euro 20 cents. So we're, we're basically talking about just over 14. That's serious euro. money, Jim. Serious, uh, serious amounts is, of wedge. It is, you know? it, I mean, life changing amounts it, it, it of money. Is, And then Pascal also sold this guy, Michael Stone, some um, super draw tickets for the annual draw of Fine Gael, of which I buy a few myself every year. Um, But a journalist came out this morning saying that we now know that over seven years, this guy, Michael Stone, provided 4,000 in support to Pascal Donoghue and Fine Gael over seven years. And the journalist did stress that is what we know at the moment. I mean, this to me is extraordinary that in the midst of all of the economic challenges we have, particularly housing, as we discussed at some length last week, we could be wasting so much political capital on an issue like this. And the other point is that Michael Stone came out this morning trying to clarify the situation and said that he did forget um, what he had done in terms of payment. Um, that's fine, we all forget stuff. Um, but he also has been acting as chairperson of the Northeast Inner City Program Implementation Board, and he was also a board member of the Land Development Agency. Um, in the case of Michael Stone, he did all of this on a pro bono basis, did not accept fees or expenses. And wait first this morning, as a result of this controversy, you know, he believes that all of this attention is actually detracting from the work of those two agencies, and he has stepped aside, he stepped down. This situation is, is just ridiculous. Here we have so much political capital being wasted. Um, over 1400 euro basically but I think even more significantly we now have a guy um, who clearly was offering a lot to his community um, pro bono membership of those two organizations etc um, he's now stepped aside and are, are people now happy that obviously a guy who's good at this sort of stuff is now gone from the arena um, I think I think it's mad stuff but that's politics for you And indeed, the opposition politicians just continue to um, push this story. And uh, we're now into the second week, at least, of it. Uh, God only knows where it's going to end, but I guess we now have to wait to see what Pascal Donoghue has to say this afternoon. But clearly, it just shows you the contrast between um, what's going on in Ireland and the United Kingdom. Chris, I mentioned the very weak UK economic data. You know, how serious do you think the UK economy is going to look in the next 12 months? Because coming out of Davos last week, we certainly got a sense that as the week progressed, there was a much more, well, I shouldn't say much more. There was a more upbeat assessment of of, of global economic prospects. Uh, the, the IMF is due out with its next economic forecast at the end of this month, the end of January. Last year, it produced three forecasts, and all of those three forecasts were downgrading growth prospects. But the expectation is that the IMF will actually update, or sorry, upgrade its forecast for twenty twenty three um, next week. And you know, the the obviously the opening up of China um, is going to have a significant impact. The collapse we're seeing in energy prices that I want to talk about in a second is having an impact. And so, but I but I think most of this more upbeat assessment does relate to the impact on the United States and on the Eurozone economy, whereas the UK seems to be flying in the face of that. I'm starting to believe, Chris, your narrative, your very negative narrative on the UK in recent times. And um, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see a, an author and a journalist i seriously respect tim harford writing in the financial times at the weekend basically an article that um you could have written in your three posts to our substack account about the uk in recent times.
0: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Yes, Tim Harford, who is a very respected FT journalist, uh, uh, Oxford University economist, wrote a piece saying, and I quote here, is life in the UK really as bad as the numbers suggest? Yes, it is, is what he says. And the subtitle is the, the past 15 years have been a disappointment on a scale we could hardly have imagined. And he runs through the sort of things in a short article that I ran through at length in my four separate blog posts. So I'm pleased that somebody quite eminent agrees with me. I'm puzzled by the fact there isn't much more of this stuff out there in the sense that the numbers are so bad. So much economic growth, prosperity has gone missing in the UK for so long now. Remember, we're talking 15 years I would have thought that that was the stuff of pitchforks in the street, quite frankly, if not a lot more articles like Tim Harford's and frankly, a lot more blog posts like Chris Johns has been writing. Where's the anger? Where's the protest? Where's the fact that people seem to have noticed? The only thing I've got, Jim, is that we're a very passive people, the Brits, very slow to anger, um, and eventually we'll be we can be prodded the only The only thing I might say is that we, it's boiled frog syndrome is that this has been happening slowly and incrementally year over year over year, and that we uh, haven 't noticed that we are sitting in this uh, disaster zone of missing output missing prosperity missing tax revenues. The third thing I would say is that we don 't join the dots we do protest over the state of the national health service we do protest over the state of public services generally. We do protest about lots of individual things. But what we seem incapable of doing is putting it all together and asking the question, well, why is all of this stuff happening? Is it connected in some way? And yes, it is. And I would argue that the connection is the bad economy, which is now a secular structural phenomena, as I say, a decade and a half old. But going back to your first remark about the purchasing managers survey data produced this morning, as you said, it stood in stark contrast to the composite PMI readings from other European countries, also released on Tuesday. And that the, the PMI readings from the Eurozone showed that Eurozone activity returned to growth in January for the first time since June 2022. So we have both cyclical short term stuff going on and long term stuff going on in the UK that says we're both in both cases, we're going in the wrong direction. The thing about Davos was interesting, actually, Jim, and it shows you how quickly things can change. When the Davos conference meeting started, uh, the the tone coming out of it from all of the reports that we saw, I wasn't there, so I could only go by the reports, were, were very, very downbeat globally. And it's only in recent days, almost as Davos was going on, that things started to improve. And I think things started The tone of the stories emerging from that forum started to get better, and that reflected more generally, I think, an improving mood. Stock markets, for example, have had a stonking start to the year, particularly emerging markets, particularly one or two markets in Europe. So they've been very encouraging, and the behaviour of stock markets can affect people's mood. Stock markets are often in leading economic indicators, for instance. So the mood has improved. It shows you how quickly things can change, because if we'd had this conversation just at the turn of the year, Jim, we'd have been very depressed if we'd simply taken our steer from what everybody else was saying. In our defense, we did produce a podcast, I think, at the beginning of the year, in which we said, we asked the question at least, could things turn out to be a wee bit better than this awful blooming consensus suggests that things are going to turn out to be. And Lo and behold, what, two, three weeks later, we're talking about already things being better. That shows you how quickly things can change in one direction or the other. And it always teaches you, be humble when you are talking about the future. But yes, it's great to see stock markets are up. People are a little bit more upbeat about the States, about the Eurozone, uh, less so about the UK, as I have to talk about at length. But overall, I think that that's a modestly better picture as, as we... Uh, as we get into the into twenty twenty three, I don't know whether you agree or not.
1: No, I I do agree, Chris. Uh, it was actually in December we were talking about the global economic outlook, and we expressed a little bit more optimism um, than the consensus at the time. And it was it was largely based on the reopening of China and the collapse in energy prices, particularly European natural gas prices. And indeed, you know that that's a story that continues to evolve. Um, at the moment. European natural gas is trading at 58.8 euro per megawatt hour. Um, It's now moving closer to the 16-month low of 50 euro per megawatt hour. And um, if you think back to last August, that was trading at around 340 euro per megawatt hour. So there's been a dramatic collapse in natural gas prices. And indeed, the European gas storage is much fuller at this time of year than would normally be the case. Uh, The warm weather has obviously helped. Imports of LNG obviously strong. And also there's been a significant diversification away from Russian gas. Um, And of course, coal, nuclear and wind have been increasingly used for um, electricity generation. So there's a whole load of factors feeding into that very positive energy story. Um, And another um, area we have, Spoken numerous times uh, in the context of Ireland, particularly about what was going on with food price inflation running at 12% in December. Uh, But global um, wheat prices at the moment are trading at around $724 per bushel. In May of last year, they were trading at $1,281 per bushel. So there is a dramatic decline happening in wheat prices also. And, you know, clearly what you would expect from that is that it will eventually feed through to food price inflation um, and impact consumers in a positive way. So after all of the extreme pessimism in relation to energy and food that followed the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on the 24th of February last year, uh, there's certainly much more, much more positive trends starting to emerge So, okay, they will both contribute to uh, declining headline inflation, but I think they will also give a boost to economic activity because they will put more disposable income into people's pockets. So it should benefit the consumer side. Uh, But against that backdrop, everything we've discussed here in relation to the Eurozone would suggest that the European Central Bank is going to keep going on the interest rate front. And there is a suggestion that the ECB could actually deliver a half percent increase at the February meeting. Um, I've said it on this podcast a few times that I think consumers and businesses here in Ireland um, and I guess in Europe should factor in the distinct possibility that the ECB will tighten rates by around a further 1% uh, by the middle
2: of the year. Yes, it, it certainly seems the case that the ECB will make its traditional uh, monetary policy mistake, but uh, we, can, we can live in hope, Jim, that they will, as you referred last week to the interview given with, between Philip Lane and Martin Wolf, which was a remarkable piece of economics, actually, because it was very long, and I've reread it since you referred us to it last week. I think Philip Lane is, is on the side of the angels, actually, and he does understand what's going on. He did emphasise, as you said... Uh, the data-driven nature of the ECB. And I think that we've got to separate the rhetoric from the action and, le- yes, very much so listen to what they say, but we've got to realise that what they actually do might be quite different. Uh, if they follow up their actions on- driven by the rhetoric, then they are going to make a big mistake, absolutely. I think, but I wonder- I think they will, in fairness. Okay. Well, I hope not. But if you're right, then uh, those of you in the euro area are going to be facing quite chunky mortgage repayment increases this year, aren't you? Uh, Yeah,
1: that would appear appear to be the case. Now, a number of um, Christine Lagarde last week at the IMF meeting, but a number of um, other ECB board members have come out in recent days basically saying, stressing the need for higher interest rates to bring inflation under control. Um, And I I think Philip, Philip Lane kind of summed it up very well last week by saying that, the ECB is not yet at a point where it's on the brink of not tightening enough or not or tightening too much. So that 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 builds my expectation that at 3.5%, which is 1% above where we are today, that is when the ECB will reach that point. That will be the pivot point. Um and the possibility in 24 that rates could start to come back down again.
2: There's a lot of water to flow under that particular bridge, Jim. It's nice always, I think, that we don't always agree with each other because I think this podcast would be very dull if we were just sitting here agreeing all the time with each other. So I think that they are not going to raise rates consistent with the rhetoric, and you think they are. Uh, so let's let's benchmark that yes. and review review it month by month as the year goes by. And, <laughs> okay, Chris, and, the, the, and I, I, yeah. I will I will allow you to retreat gracefully when the <laughs> gracefully when the moment arrives. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Uh another thing that's
1: you know continuing to go on in financial markets, uh, the dollar continues to weaken. The euro is up at one oh eight seventy this morning, one twenty three fifty three between sterling and the dollar. So, we're, you know, having attained incredible highs last year, the dollar has been very much in retreat over the last three months or so. Do you think this is going to continue? And do you think it's justified to see this dollar weakness?
2: Yeah, I think, again, at risk of blowing our own trumpet, When the last time we talked about this a few months ago, we, I think, said that the dollar when it it was stronger than parity against the euro, was dangerously and egregiously overvalued. And we based that very scientifically with lots of econometric evidence based on a visit that I had to the United States um, and how expensive everything was. So, uh, so far so good in terms of that forecast. And I suggested that if there was such a thing as a correct level for the exchange rate, I'm not sure there is, but if there is a correct level for the exchange rate, it would be about $120 euro. So we're halfway there in okay. terms of the move, the move since then. It never, goes in, it never goes in a straight line, as you know, Jim. One of the things that happened again at the turn of the year, you talked about that gloomy consensus for economic growth being very monolithic at the end of the year and then suddenly changing. At the end of 2022, there was an absolute monolithic consensus that the dollar's ascent was going to continue. Everybody assumed that the dollar was going... All the forecasters out there said that the dollar would remain very, very strong. Um, And now that consensus is shifting as the dollar itself is shifting. So just beware, if if economic forecasting is hard, the old cliche is that exchange rate forecasting is absolutely impossible. So uh, I do think the right level for the dollar is about 120. I think we will get there over the course of the next while. I'm not going to be any more precise than that, but I don't think we're going to get there in a straight line either.
1: Okay. Um, I want to wrap up in a second by handing back to you to talk about Sinn Féin Uh, but a statistic actually I'd meant to mention in the context of the UK earlier was that uh, 467,000 days were lost to strikes in the UK in November which is the highest in over a decade and that probably tells us a lot about the mess that's going on Chris you have got a bit of feedback about your um, bias
2: against Sinn Féin Well, I don't know whether it's a bias. It's certainly an opinion. I have opinions about lots of things, and I hope they're not biased opinions. My conceit is that all of my opinions are very much data-driven and informed by facts, where where they can be. And uh, not for the first time, somebody got in touch with me to say, would you give it a rest with the Sinn Féin bashing? And this one particular guy said to me that, uh, Chris, it looks like you've got an agenda. So I thought, well, What is an agenda? I don't know what you think it is, Jim, but when you use that word, agenda, it suggests something sinister, perhaps something hidden. Uh, I don't think either of those things are going on with what we say about Sinn Féin, indeed what we say about any political party. Hear what I say about the British Tory party, for example. Hear what I say about Keir Starmer, who I don't particularly admire either. I have lots of things to say about lots of different political parties, including Sinn Féin. And one of the things that I do say about Sinn Féin is that both of our opinions are driven by analysis of their policy platform. And we don't think, in many cases, that it adds up to very much. The final thing I'd say is that, in my defence about um, having a go at Sinn Féin, is that I do think that they they will be a problem for Ireland if and when they get into power. And uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful piece about... Uh, in defence of liberal democratic capitalism by Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the FT recently. Long long read, well worth it for anybody that's that's interested in, in these sorts of things. And it was his definition of populists that caught my eye. And he was talking about the way in which our societies are crumbling is because too many populists are in power in too many countries. and Populists do all sorts of different things, all sorts of similar things. But a common characteristic of them is that they always pretend that very complex problems have simple solutions and that they are the only ones that know about these simple solutions. And that's what Sinn Féin, in my opinion, do with housing, is that they pretend that it's far more simple than it actually is. And they also say that they have the solution when I think that they don't. So I don't think I've got an agenda. I've just got a point of view. What do you think, Jim?
1: Uh, I totally agree, Chris. Um, I have to say I am on the same page as you on this. I think it's incumbent on us as commentators to talk about and assess things as we see it. We may be right, we may be wrong. People may agree, people may disagree. That's fine, that's the nature of discourse. But I think it's important to give our views on how we view Sinn Féin. And I have to say, I totally agree with you. I do not believe... Sinn Féin would be good for this country, either socially, politically or economically. Um, and I do not fancy living in a country with Sinn Féin in government, I have to say. I may have no choice in that regard, but it doesn't fill me with glee. My only hope is that if Sinn Féin does get elected to government eventually, that it doesn't engage in um, cutting down the money tree, That it actually becomes a bit more pragmatic and actually recognises that the resources that fund social expenditure in this country particularly and all of the resources we spend on running the country. They are generated by the tax revenues that flow from economic activity and if you as a party implement policies to damage economic activity you are going to undermine those tax flows and there would be less money available to spend Um, and hence the money tree will not be delivered. So um, I don't for one moment intend um, cutting back on my analysis. If I see Sinn Féin doing stuff that I think is positive, um, I will certainly allude to that. If I see stuff that I think is negative, I will allude to that. Um, And likewise with the parties of government, um, I was extremely critical of those parties last week in relation to the housing crisis. And um, I'll continue to be, you know, as um, discursive as I possibly can.
2: Well said, Jim. And I'll continue to have a go at the Tories and Keir Starmer as well. So on that note, I think we should wrap it and speak to you next time. Super, Chris. Great to talk. Cheers, Jim.
1: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did... Please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.